1: Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our guest today is actor, motivational speaker, and retired U.S. Army Colonel, Greg Gadson. As you can imagine, with a multi-talented guest like Greg, we're going to cover a wide range of topics today and how they relate to personal empowerment and what is sure to be an interesting, informative, and absolutely inspirational edition of Next Steps Forward. Colonel Greg Gadson, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thank you, Chris, it's great to be here this, uh, this afternoon.
1: Greg Gadson is a 1989 graduate of the US Military Academy at West Point and served on active duty for more than 20 years. He was a field artillery officer and served on active duty for operations, Desert Shield and Desert Storm, Operation Joint Forge, Operation Enduring Freedom in Afghanistan and Operation Iraqi Freedom. He's a former commander of the Army's Fort Belvoir Garrison and he's also a bilateral above-the-knee amputee as a result of a 2007 improvised explosive device attack in Baghdad. Colonel, let's dive right into things.
3: Yes,
2: sir.
1: As you know, Next Steps Forward is focused on personal empowerment and helping listeners and others take their next steps forward. And that's why I think you're such a perfect guest this week. So much of your life has been about personal empowerment, not just once or twice, but numerous times as you've decided to, or had to, adapt to different circumstances. Going back to your early years, how have you been able to motivate yourself to take charge of situations in your life instead of letting them take charge of you?
2: Well, thanks uh, for the great question. So, um, you know, like, like many of us, um, our, our lives are really, uh, they begin with our parents, begin with our, our younger, uh, our, our formative years growing up, and, and uh, I'm certainly no different there, um, Having two parents that uh, that were born in the '40s and grew up in the Jim Crow South, um, they were able to uh, to ground me and and to really kind of pass on uh, uh, lessons of, of of perseverance and and uh, you know just learn how to fight through difficult situations. They're both uh, college graduates of Howard University and 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 uh, you know, raise, a, raise a, a family. And, and so um, uh, they, they are fundamentally my, my first uh, examples of, of really uh, per, uh, uh, perseverance and, and really kind of appreciating um, circumstances that they had nothing to do with, but had to endure.
1: What prompted you to decide you wanted to get into West Point? And then how did you go about making that happen?
2: Well, I, I wish I could say it was a, it was a, it was a grand plan, but, um, you know, I, uh, I kind of wanted to pave my, my, my path, my own path, and I wasn't, uh, I wasn't, I was a good student. I probably didn't show, uh, you know, I probably didn't show it on most, on most days, but I wanted to, my path and my vision was to be a professional football player. And uh, in order to do that, I was going to earn a college, a Division I college scholarship and, and play football in college and then, and then get to the NFL. Um, I was an all-state football player in Virginia, captain of my all-star team, captain of my high school football team, I was a wrestler. And, and so, uh, you know, best laid plans uh, didn't work out for me. Uh, I didn't uh, the, no, the the scholarship offers that I had dreamed of uh, were not there. And uh, and and actually, the only one, only Division One's uh, uh, opportunity that I was offered was to play at West Point. So, you know, Plan B. Um, I, I, I honestly went to West Point uh, not knowing a whole lot about it, but with a chip on my shoulder, a chip on my shoulder to prove that I could play football at the highest level. And and uh, and that was uh, that's that's what started my journey on the military. Really.
1: Well, that's not a terrible Plan B to have. And we'll talk about uh, football a little bit later in the the conversation. Right. The Navy used to have the slogan, join the Navy, see the world. But your Army assignments took you all around the United States and all around the world. As we mentioned, some very dangerous places like Iraq, Afghanistan, Bosnia-Herzegovina. Was that experience of a broader worldview something you were hoping for or expecting when you joined? Or were you looking for something else?
2: Um, I I would say that uh, that that accurately describes uh, kind of what I was kind of looking for. Now, I say expecting. Uh, What was ironic was, you know, I I went to uh, West Point in the middle of the 80s. And so that was, you know, really uh, the height of the Cold War. And I was commissioned into a a Cold War army. Um, And many of my classmates, the vast majority of them were, were you know heading to Europe and and sort of uh, you know viewing our adversaries you know being this, the former Soviet Union and I, I had kind of a contrarian look I I really thought that the uh, that our our future wars and conflicts would would revolve around the Middle East and so I was a Middle East history major I took two two years of Arabic at West Point and and I chose an assignment that if um, if something happened in the Middle East, then uh, there was a good chance that I might be deployed there. And lo and behold, it, it played out exactly that way. Um, I was uh, I was actually out at a national training center in the Mojave Desert uh, when uh, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And so my battalion was pulled out uh, of uh, our training early And uh, by early October 1990. I was in Saudi Arabia.
1: How does the army experience typically change a young man or young woman, and what are the similarities and differences for someone who enters the military as an enlisted personnel and someone who enters as an officer, as you did?
2: Well, so um, I, I guess I can really uh, answer both ways. Uh, I, because of my my uh, my uh, uncertainty of my academic profile, I, I actually went to the uh, the army's prep school, West Point's prep school. And so I was enlisted for a year. Where I was stationed at Fort Monmouth, where I was really stu- uh, academic and, and board scores focused, uh, math and, uh, and English to, to, to you know set myself up for uh, getting through the academy. So um, probably uh, not the, the typical enlistment experience, but I did uh, you know I got in process and went through uh, drill sergeants uh, taking us through, and and so. Um, and I think that perspective of being enlisted really informed uh informed me as a, a soldier. And so um, you know, I I say officers enlisted were all soldiers and, and and we have our roles uh that 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 form the the basis of our army and, and it's worked uh you know uh effectively for nearly 250 years. And so um um I, I like to say that. I I um I could always identify empathize sympathize with with uh the challenges of our, of our enlisted soldiers what we've asked them to do and I've always felt that um I have got to be able to do and know and 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 uh be able to um empathize for for everything that I've asked my soldier to do as an officer so
1: and along those lines, you know, what sort of young person would you encourage to enter the military either as an enlisted or an officer? And I guess the flip side of that question would be, who would you discourage from entering the military?
2: Well, um, you know, first of all, I, I realized that it would be impossible, you know, just because of the size of our force for every every young man or woman to, to join the military. And so, uh, I guess I approach the answer to this question in, in terms of service. And and and, there, and um being able to serve in uniform or, or the Peace Corps, or whatever it is, you you essentially have a window in your life where that, that's really an option. Um, you know, some some of the you know services obviously have a, a limit to, uh, an upper limit to when you can join and that you know that that varies depending on the, the needs of the military. But um, uh, it's about service. It's about being part of something greater than yourself. And so what I would say to young men and women is if you, if you have a burning desire, if you have a desire to be a part of uh, something bigger than you, then, then uh, you should really take a look at the service because um, it, it offers you that opportunity. And then the other part I, I encourage them to, th- to think about is, is, again, it's like your education. Uh, once you serve that that's something you will always have with you the rest of your life. And so it's a window. Um, and, and, um, you know, almost every person I can imagine that's that serve is proud of their service. And, and so, um, if, if, um, it's, it's a short time period in the span of our lives sometimes two or three years seems like a lot of, a lot of time, but it really is a, a drop in the bucket and, and, um, if if you have any inkling to uh to want to serve i, I would encourage you to to investigate and take a look at it
1: that's a good paid promotion for you right there for military thank you I <laughs> yeah. love it so even as you came out of west point as a commissioned officer were there obstacles you had to overcome you know and i'm thinking in particular whether there was pervasive or subtle racism
2: um i i uh uh to say that uh, the racism um doesn't, didn't exist or doesn't exist would, would, would be an would be inaccurate. But, but I, uh, I, one of the things I feel very uh, proudly about and and really how our military, our nation's military has been really kind of the leader of a lot of social change. I mean, we're the integration. And, and so, um, I like to say that we, we have been, um, proactive in, in, uh, in integration, integration of women, the integration of minorities, the, the, the integration of the LBGT community. Um, um, uh, is, you know, uh, the basis of our organization is that, that everybody is equal and that everybody deserves to be treated with dignity and respect. And so, um, how can we expect uh, someone to, to give their life and service to the nation if, 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 if they uh if they're not seen in equal footing and so it is fundamentally um um the basis of of our our military organizations and so um from that perspective um you know i was able to 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 serve in various assignments of various uh various kind of organizations and locations Um, um you know, I can say that there were times that I did run into some environments that were challenging, but, um, you know, as I said in the beginning, you know, um, um, I'm very grateful that um, uh, the lessons and, the, and the, the wisdom that my parents were able to impart and, uh, and the mentors that I had along the way that were enabling me to, to kind of hang in there and, and overcome
1: people talk about having a bad day or a bad night. Let's put things in perspective by talking about a very bad night in your life. On the night of May 7th, 2007, while returning from Memorial service for two soldiers from your brigade, a roadside bomb exploded in Baghdad. You lost both legs and your right arm was severely injured. What do you remember about that night and what stands out most about your long, difficult recovery process?
2: Well, the first thing um, that, uh, that, uh, that stands about stands out about that night was was the was the memorial service that I attended before I was wounded. Um, uh, First Lieutenant uh, Ryan Jones and Specialist Sunson had uh, had paid in full measure um, uh, three or four days before um, uh, I was wounded, and so um, Iraq was very violent uh, in those early months of two thousand seven. And it was almost like um, for many of us, we recognized the violence and in a lot of ways we weren't necessarily able to kind of process it on a, at least on a very personal level. Um, but, to, but that night um, I was, uh, it was two soldiers again, as you said, from my brigade. And so um, it, really, it really had kind of stuck in my gut so as I was heading back to my, uh, to my headquarters uh, in a four vehicle patrol, my vehicle was hit. Um, I knew what it was. It was actually, my, I, my vehicle had been hit by an IED before. And so I knew um, what, what was happening. And I, I knew, um, you know, what was going on. I can remember, you know, kind of getting blown out of my vehicle and flying through the air and hitting the ground and coming to a rolling stop on my back I was pissed off um I mean I was just really fired up because I again I knew what had happened and and then from my perspective you know I'm like you know I'm I'm here trying to make a difference in these people's lives which I have very little connection with and and they're trying to kill me and I just you know it's just kind of hard to kind of make sense of this and um and then I knew that I was uh, in bad shape, and and uh, I I knew my life was in the balance. I just said, God, I don't want to die here, and I was out. Um, but I was fortunate that my teammates. Um, and I, I like this photo behind me. Those are my teammates. Those are the men and women that were in my uh, battalion that I took to Iraq. Um, First Sergeant Frederick Johnson. He was the first to get to my vehicle when it finally came to a stop and recognized that I was missing. And um, he would locate me probably 100 or so meters from where my vehicle stopped, already unconscious. He started to resuscitate me, and a young 19-year-old uh, uh, private PFC would, would put the tourniquets on my legs, um, the fact that the doctors say saved my life. Um, I, would get, uh, I would get evacuated and arrive in, in back in the States on the 11th of May Washington, D.C., at Walter Reed. I still had my legs, but um, I was uh, intubated on a feeding tube requiring surgery every other day to uh, repair my blood vessels and clean up my wounds. Finally, on the, uh, uh, after a week after arriving on the 18th of May, um, the blood vessels in my left leg could no longer sustain blood flow started to bleed to death in, uh, in the in- in intensive care. The the ICU nurse literally pulled off her belt and put a fuel expedient tourniquet on my leg. They took me in surgery and amputated my uh, my right leg above, my left leg above the knee to save my life. The next day, the same thing happened to my right leg, but they the doctors are one step ahead and actually pulled a vein from my left bicep and put in my right leg uh, to save my right leg. Now, by this time, I was out of uh, my induced coma, and I was able to communicate uh, with the doctors. Ultimately, I would make the decision for the doctors to amputate my right leg. I just, uh, honestly, Chris, I just wanted to get on with life. Um, my leg, my right leg was never going to work as it was, it was supposed to, and I was already missing my left leg. So, so on the 24th of May, the doctors uh, amputated my right leg above the knee, when I came out of surgery, I got some more great news. Uh, so I'd been in the hospital two weeks by this time, they, and they got to the, tell me that my right arm um, and elbow were broken and, and it would require surgery to repair those. So um, it was just, you know, one thing after another.
1: You know, I called that a, a very bad night, and that's obviously a, a huge misunderstanding. How did that experience change you? You know, were there any positive things you've drawn from that night? Or is it simply an event that happened and you've had to overcome and, and move ahead from it?
2: Well, the, uh, the, the first thing that um, I will tell you is that um, I, I would say that I found out how strong my faith was. I mean, I really, I, I, if you asked me, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how strong my faith was before uh, this happened, I, I mean, honestly, I'd probably say five or six, maybe seven at the most. Um but I but but I recognized that in, in my moment of 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 uh that I could call on God and I, I did. That was the last thing um that let me I'm just gonna hit the mute on this phone, apologize but, not a problem. Um, that um, I uh called on God and and so the first thing that I recognized that um I was able to accept what had happened to me. And I knew that I accepted it because I wasn't angry about, I wasn't angry. I wasn't, I wasn't like, why me or just, and, and so I, I know, I know that my faith, I know that God not only saved me, but he healed me. I, I was already immediately beginning to move forward with my life because I, I had accepted what had happened to me. And and that acceptance, I tell you, anything that happens to us in our lives, if we can't accept it, then essentially it, it encumbers us. It's like dra- dragging an invisible anchor around that, that no one sees. Doesn't mean you can't succeed. Doesn't mean you can't overcome. But but it, but it also means that you're still dragging it with you, and and ultimately it it sh- sort of shackles you. And and I was free with I was free from those shackles. It's, I say that uh, I, you know, it's a little tongue-in-cheek, but you know, I'm freer now um, uh, without my legs than I than when I when I had my legs.
1: Did you plan to retire after twenty-six years of active duty, or did the ID change the course of your career?
2: Well, um, I had always planned to retire at twenty. I wanted to, I wanted to, uh, you know, finish my twenty, command my unit, and. And in transition for the military, um, you know, my in the my my big goal was, you know, if I could have done anything, was maybe to be a photojournalist, believe it or not. But when I after I got wounded, um, you know, it's it clearly changed my timeline, and I guess I, you know, in the back of my mind, it was sort of like it was me kind of pushing back, saying, "Look, I'm I'm not letting you guys run me out of the military. I'm not giving you the satisfaction. I'm." I still have a heart of service. I still want to serve, and, and I'm going to make the Army throw me out because I'm not, going to, I'm not going to just go with the flow.
1: I love that. Make them throw you out. Yeah. So I mentioned some of your duty stations, but you're also the director of the Army Wounded Warrior Program, also known as AW2 in Alexandria, Virginia. And for our listeners, that's not to be confused with the Wounded Warrior Project, which is a nonprofit organization what does the army wounded warrior program do and what are the eligibility
2: requirements? Right. So, um, you know, with the, I, at the, at the, with some of the the challenges, the wars, two simultaneous wars, two simultaneous long wars, counterinsurgencies, and, and men and women like me that were surviving injuries that, you know, in past wars we would have never survived. Um, you know, quite frankly, at the time, our, our Veterans Administration was not prepared to to be dealing with the with the rate and the complexity of the casualties of the men and women coming back. And so, the Army, like many of the services, stood up um, equivalents uh, to the Army Wounded Warrior Program to deal with the, the severe complexities of our wounded, injured, and ill service members. and and so, um that was that organization for the army and and so um once I was approved to uh to stay on active duty i mi- I remember um before I got approved to stay on active duty the the army came to me and said, "You know, would you be willing to you know the, the, to to service serve in this position?" And I was like, and I honestly first kind of pushed back on nah, I, you know i I don't want to." this is not about me, I'm, I'm not being defined by my injuries and I, I don't wanna do this job just because I was injured. But um, eventually, I, I guess I had an epiphany of, of, of really, you know, my voice and, and, and my empowerment um, and what I could do um, and who I could represent. And, and I went back and said, if that job offer still is there, I'd like to take it. And so I was approved in, in January of 2010 to, uh, to stay on active duty. And, and in June of uh, 2010, after I finished my War College Fellowship, I assumed the duties as the director of the Army Wounded War Program. The program was designed to, to um, support our severely wounded, injured and ill uh, service members so it wasn't just wounded, you could have a medical um, uh, illness or, or an injury um, that um, had a, a 30% or greater um, um, disability rating um, and that was the criteria for, for being in the program.
1: You now, I imagine you had some heartbreaking experiences as director of AW2, but the, you also saw the very best examples of the human spirit Especially as I understand, when there are more than twenty thousand severely wounded, ill, and injured soldiers and veterans currently enrolled in AW Two, were there lessons you learned even having, after over- overcome so much yourself already about perseverance?
2: Well, you know it's, um, you know a lot of times we talk about perseverance, we talk about resiliency, and and I think in on a lot of ways. Um, I mean, hopefully, no one ever has to endure anything like this to to find out if they have it. Um, but it's also not something that you you pull out of your pocket. At least I don't I don't think of it as, as that way. Like you know, I don't go. I have to be. I have to persevere. I have to. I have to be resilient. Um, as I go back to my parents, it's really about how you live your life, and and one of the things that. My parents and and my coaches in in sports and my teachers, um, you know, I, I as I the lesson that I've learned and that I can I guess I can consistently articulate now is, is about how you live your life, um, and for me it's about being it's about first being present. It's a not uh, not holding on to the past and not living a day that you won't have, but truly. Uh, keeping yourself present. And if you can, and, and if you're able to do that, then you can, then you can be your best living up to being your best. And that's all we can do. I can't live yesterday. I can't live a day that I may not have. Let me just be the best I can today. Let me be present. And, and that gives me peace and that allows me to be peace. Um, I, you know, uh, coach Young, my 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 college football coach, used to say, "You play the play you're in," and and um, and I, I'm very grateful for those lessons because I think what that's instilled into me and and it built a character into me is just to be present, be my best stay in the moment, and and so in that tough time when I was faced with the uncertainty of what my future looked like and what my life would be like. After my injuries, you know, I didn't have a future, and so I went back. I reverted back to essentially just being present. I can I can only be where I'm at, and um, and that is my enduring lesson. That is my that's what I try to impart f- to the folks. Is is I can only control where I'm at, the now, and myself, and and, and and not to give away my energy to all these other things that I can't control.
1: We've been talking with Greg Gadsden, and we'll be right back after a short break.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
3: at voiceamerica.com. Voice America is where you are and where you want to be. Join us around the globe as we broadcast live from some of the most interesting events available. Don't forget to view all our live events, including on-demand access to past events that you may have missed by visiting voiceamerica.com forward slash live events.
0: The White House doctor makes house calls. Listen every week for house calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. Dr. Connie has served as the White House physician under three U.S. presidents Now, she joins the Voice America Empowerment Channel to help you enrich yourself physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Our guests will include professionals from a variety of fields who will bring you tips that you can apply to your own life. Listen for House Calls with Dr. Connie every Thursday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hear Just Be You a lot these days. But who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on The Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I Am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1 888 346 9141. That's 1 888 346 9141. Or send an email to Chris at Next Steps Now, back to this week's show.
1: Okay, we are back with retired Colonel Greg Gadsden. Colonel. We were talking about the roadside bomb that severely injured you and how it changed your life. In 2017, you were honored with a prestigious Henry Viscardi Achievement Award, which recognizes extraordinary leaders with disabilities. I was reading about Dr. Henry Viscardi Jr. for whom the award is named. Would you share a bit of his story and tell us about the award and your selection as a recipient?
2: Well, the as you said the award is uh it, it was a it was a great honor to receive it and to be recognized um uh in a community that you know i could have never imagined um uh that i would ever be a part of uh, at least the you know the way it happened and and to the extent that i, I am um um uh, mr Vascardi uh recognized, um, the dignity um, that all people deserve, and and so um, is is certainly a pioneer in um, in uh, in in the disabilities in the in the world of those with disabilities. You know the irony for me um, in in receiving this award, particularly as a veteran, because our veterans have played significant roles in um, in advancing the, the recognition, and and the empowerment of those with disabilities in our communities, um, because of the wars, we've come back disfigured and and um, and and you know the desire to live up to um, and pursue our dreams is, you know our countries had to confront those and accommodate us and and it's the consciousness of Mr. Viscardi the uh, the vision. Um, uh, that he and and really the, the tenacity to to hold our nation accountable to hold people accountable for treating all people with dignity and respect, just as the, as our Constitution says, is um, is is incredibly humbling and 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 it was it was truly an honor to be able to um, to accept that award.
1: Last month, another West Point grad and retired Army Colonel. Irving Smith, who introduced the two of us, was a guest on Next Steps Forward. His career has been distinguished by his dedication to fighting institutional inequality, including serving as West Point's Head of Minority Admissions. As I think about his service and yours, I also think about the sensitivity issue of race relations in general, and the recent push to rename military installations named after prominent Confederate leaders. You served at Fort Bragg, which was named after Confederate General Braxton Bragg, and at Fort Belvoir, which takes its name from a plantation that had African-American slaves. Do you think that Fort Bragg and Fort Belvoir should be renamed?
2: Um, I think uh, I say, for, you know, it's funny. I, uh, you know, Belvoir is a French word that means beautiful place uh, as well, and so um, maybe I have a little bit of a um, a different spin on Belvoir, but um, um, but certainly Fort Bragg, um, I, I would have to say, I, I agree. We we need to look at. Um, uh, replacing those, so look um i'm not uh, i'm not about changing history, but from my perspective and it's you know this is something I identified even as a as a cadet the irony of of West pointing buildings being named after uh you know confederate generals you know um at every at commissioning and at every promotion, I took an oath to support and defend the constitution and uh and we have installations in places of, of uh federal United States honor recognition named after after people that did not uh, honor their oath and um I, I just I think um I I think that uh, we, we've got to take a look at renaming those you know uh and then on the flip side um you know of all of our military bases uh you know you could argue that one of our greatest presidents, ulysses s Grant, uh, we don't have an installation named after him and and he was a general as well and so um uh, uh, so long answer to say yeah uh, w- w- we really need to take a look at what we're what we are uh who we're holding in honor and holding in in esteem and and you know for every african American for every person of minority um, that sees that name and, and what that name fought for, um, it, it, just, it just stands in stark, stark irony for what we are fighting for.
1: And so. Um, so maybe uh, your name Fort Bragg to Fort Grant? That, that's a good start. We'll start there. Yeah. You know, another thing that Colonel Smith and I discussed was the importance of education and I'm really struck by how similar your education path is to his. You're both West Point graduates. You hold two master's degrees, one in information systems from Webster University and the other in policy management from Georgetown University. And as our listeners know, I'm a Syracuse Orange alum. And so if we have time, we'll talk about basketball, but we'll save that for later too. Colonel Smith has you beat by one master's degree, but you're also a graduate of the Command and General Staff College and the Advanced Field Artillery Officers course in 2010. And while Colonel Smith has a degree from the Army War College, you're a War College fellow at the Institute of War Politics in Washington, D.C. So you just might have the edge on Colonel Smith on that one. All right. But either way, both of you have very impressive academic credentials. I'll ask you what I asked him, and that is simply, why has it been so important to you to continue to keep learning and to accomplish so much academically?
2: Well, um, I, I, Irv, Irv, Irv is, um, I would I would consider Erg, um much more of an academic than myself. You know, I, I actually find it um, uh, the academic environment has never been a, a favorite environment of mine. Um, I think for me, it's it's really been a, a recognition of um, of of progress and what I what I need to better myself. And so, um, it's not an endeavor that. I looked for, but it's an endeavor that I recognized that I needed to, to remain competitive and, and to improve myself. You know, the funny thing is, after I got my first master's degree, I said, I am never going back to the college again. And so as I was recovering um from my wounds, uh what what I I, I realized I was sort of in this awkward position where um, I needed something to do in my life, um, but I wasn't ready for the responsibility of going back to a military unit. Um, and and, and it, was, it was for this reason. I was like, I, I, don't, I, I knew I wasn't ready for responsibility. I didn't want to fail and have others fail below me. And so I, I came to the conclusion that at least if I, if I went to school, um, if, if I failed, then it was only impacting me. And so uh, I asked the army if I could kind of use school to work my way back into life to sort of figure things out. And so it was, that was what kind of drove me to my second graduate degree. And I, and, and, uh, and I had deferred going to the war college. And so after I finished Georgetown, I definitely did not want to go to grad school two years in a row. And so I, I uh, again, I I queried and asked them if I could find an alternative to, and and that was my fellowship. So um, you give me way too much credit for uh, <laughs> for for, for, um, for being there, but you know, um, but 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 in in hindsight, um, my my education has has opened up uh, so many opportunities to me, and and so um, you know, formal education is 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 really what the uh, the world uh, tends to recognize but but um um the thirst for knowledge the thirst for improvement is is really the lesson that I try to impart upon people is you never stop learning and and you can be a, in a traditional learning situation but you can be a non-traditional learner and uh there are plenty of examples of of non-traditional learners that have been successful and and achieve uh, greatness in our, in our, in our society.
1: And what do you say to young people, or even for that matter, to older people who have been out of school for years or even decades, who believe that higher education is out of reach or just not worth the extra effort? Well,
2: I, I could, first thing I could say is if I can do it, then anybody can do it. But, um, um, I, I would say, you know, it, it's, uh, it's a gateway to challenge yourself. I, I, you know, being in an academic environment is, is, is truly a challenge for myself. And, and so find ways to, to grow. I mean, we, we don't grow unless we challenge ourselves. And, um, and that's how I've learned to, 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 to use education. You know, I, I, I learn a lot from YouTube, believe it or not, because, you know, it, it, poses a question and, and, and I, it's, it's an, it's true to be an invaluable tool. So, you know, the, the bottom line is we're always learning or you, sh- you, you, sh- you always want to learn. Um, um, you know, knowledge is, knowledge is temporary, but learning is lifelong.
1: Let's shift gears now and, and talk about another of your careers that you learned. Let's talk about acting. How does a guy go from being a real-life army colonel to a lieutenant colonel on the big screen in the 2012 movie Battleship? And what was that experience like?
2: Well, uh, certainly uh not one that I ever anticipated, ever dreamed of, ever desired um of. And and really, um it was uh it was the graces of of Peter Berg, who was who uh you know found out. About me through the national press and and my involvement with the New York Giants and and um, you know their uh, their success in uh, in the two thousand seven two thousand eight uh, football season. Um, but I took it on uh, like learning to walk in prosthetics. I I, uh, I I took it on as a personal challenge to be my best and and do something um, that I'd never done before. But you know, I uh, it was great working for Pete. Um, he made me almost kind of think of him as a as a football coach, and and so you know you you take direction from a coach, um, and, and you took director from um, you know a, a director, and and um, uh, I think what allowed me to, to to you know be able to do what I did was, was sort of a a recognition of. Of the journey, the arc of my character, but also the trust that I had in Pete and the folks around me to be able to uh, really kind of access my emotions and and allow myself to to be vulnerable. Um, so I know there are a lot of sayings. Acting, you really are in a, in a way uh, opening up yourself. There's a when I first trust me when I first started. I was like this. I was the lieutenant colonel, um, but I eventually opened Greg and accessed, um, you know, uh, Greg Gatson to, 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 uh, to, to carry out my part.
1: Well, you then reprised that role as David Cole in 10 episodes of The Inspectors, which was a crime drama TV series that ran from 2015 to 2019 and centered on criminal investigations by U.S. Postal Inspectors. So, again, how'd you go from a real-life colonel to a movie lieutenant colonel to, I assume, TV series Postal Inspector?
2: Yeah, well, just, uh, yeah, I'm, I, I'm not sure. It, well, I, they didn't kill me, so they didn't kill me off. But uh, um, it, was, uh, it, was, uh, it was the director and the casting folks that saw me in Battleship and, and, and thought that I, was, uh, I played a role as a mentor to, uh, to a young man who, who was recently paralyzed in a in a car accident, and and so um, again a little bit of a, a transfers to you know um, what i had been through, my, my uh, service as the uh, you know director of the Army Wounded Warrior program, and and really being able to empathize with with um, uh, with a character that was in that situation, and so um, I I got a chance to to do that, and again it was uh, it was pretty neat, so. Um, it's, it is truly, uh, when it's, it's often, um, I, I guess I'm not used to hearing my name as an actor. I mean, it's, it's, I I've done it for sure. And I, I guess I'm a SAG member, but, um, it's not, uh, it's not the first, uh, adjective that comes out of my mouth when I think <laughs> of myself.
1: Well, maybe it's this one. Uh, you mentioned earlier in the show, you're interested in photography and photojournalism. Yeah. How did you get into that? What sparked your interest?
2: Well, I, um, I think I, I, I believe I would say I picked up the, the hobby from my dad who really didn't, who did it as a young man. Um, and, and then it just kind of fell by the wayside and it was, you know, perhaps my interest in his equipment that, uh, that, uh, you know, captured me, and and so I would, uh, I would, I bought my first camera when I was 18 years old. Uh, I remember, you know, you know, collecting my graduation from high school money and and buying my first camera, and uh, and uh, a camera is, you know, is has been part of my life ever since. You know, many people like to uh, write and journal. Um, my, you know, my—that's what my camera is to me. it's, it's actually my—it's—it's—it's um, um, it's, it's become a huge part of my life. I remember when I was recovering in the hospital, and and after I'd come out of surgery from my uh, the the surgery that the first surgery I did on my right arm, um, um, I I had some complications from that, and, and I I had ulnar nerve and radial nerve damage. And heterotopic ossification, which caused my right arm to lock up. So I couldn't bend my right arm. And the radial nerve damage prevented me from picking up my right wrist. And I remember that was really the kind of straw emotionally and mentally that broke the camel's back for me it wasn't losing my legs, but it was not, it was real, the realization that I might not be able to hold a camera again. That was just utterly devastating. and, and, and fortunately that didn't happen, but that was, um, again, that was, uh, that was the personal kind of um, uh, challenge that I had that not many, not many were aware of.
1: Well, your work has most recently been featured prominently in Coming Home, Journey Community Dialogue, a public art project based in New York City that seeks to encourage communication between civilians and those who have served in the U.S. military. What message were you hoping to convey and what did that experience mean to you?
2: Well, um, uh, uh, Brookie Maxwell um, was the founder of um, of the uh, of the Coming Home Project, and and I actually met her um, uh, with a, another West Point grad, uh, Lieutenant General retired uh, John Colwell, who uh, felt that I could, uh, you know, I could I could connect with her and share some of the lessons of. Of really all aspects of the arts, from dancing to singing and acting, um, to photography, artistry, and in conveying um, the, the 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 service of our of our service members and our families and the and the sacrifice that that we make in service to our country. Um, I've all uh, I often have shared this fact that you know um, you know less than a percent of our our country serves in uniform, and when you contrast that to nearly twenty five percent during the height of the war, World War II, where you know one in four Americans was was uh, uh, serving our, our country or uh, in uniform or maybe not di- or directly in uniform or out of uniform, but you know, everybody knew someone in the military, um, where that's not the case, and and so um, I know that our country appreciates and re- and and respects and knows what we do, but they don't necessarily know who we are and what we sacrifice, and um, and this project was an attempt uh, through dialogue, um, through many different forms, to be able to 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 kind of connect that and. And cause some intellectual curiosity in people to, to at least wonder and explore um, uh, that to a higher level.
1: Well, I said at the start of the podcast that you're a multifaceted, multi talented guy. And we talked about playing football at West Point, but you didn't go pro. You know, somehow, though, you have a Super Bowl ring. And again, you didn't play pro. Now, as a lifelong diehard Dallas Cowboys fan, it hurts me a bit to relive the 2007-2008 NFL season. Right. But how the heck did you manage to become a recipient of a specially minted Super Bowl 42 ring?
2: Well, thank you. Um, well, it's um, I, ironically, a um, uh, I, I, uh, I West Point classmate and football teammate, Mike Sullivan, um, was uh, was a coach for the New York Giants, uh, was a wide receivers coach at the time. And like many of my teammates, he came by to to visit me while I was recovering in the hospital. Ironically, uh, that season, they had started out, uh, the Giants had started out 0-2 and were coming to Washington, D.C. to play the Washington Redskins, who were 2-0. And and Mike, um, you know, kind of recalled our visit and 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 asked me if I'd be willing to talk with the team, and I and I said sure. And at this point, realized I had never spoken publicly to anyone, and, and so he talked uh, talked it over at Coach Coughlin, and Coach Coughlin would ask me to to address the team the night before they played the Redskins. Um, I remember that uh, I remember sitting on the sideline with the Redskins, and and we were we went in the a locker room at halftime, and the score was. Uh, Redskins 14 Giants three. And I remember kind of thinking to myself, that was heck of a motivational speech. But ironically, the uh, our, our uh, the Giants would uh rally and, and would win the game twenty-four to seventeen and uh and begin a an eleven game road streak, which which uh um which went through Dallas in uh a, a playoff game and and uh and culminated in the Giants win the Super Bowl 42, where I was able to address the, the team uh, 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 the night before the game once more. And so um, the, the Giants uh, uh, were kind and generous to, um, to share their uh, victory with me and, and awarded me a Super Bowl ring. Actually, I have, just, I have two. I have one for the, the second time we beat the Patriots as well.
1: Now you're just rubbing it in. <laughs> What do you want our audience to recognize and internalize about personal empowerment and their ability to conquer obstacles?
2: Well, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, to to me, I I think the challenge is is both simple and it's both tough. Um, Having the self awareness to to really be in the present, to to let go of the past, and to not live a day that we're in to to truly be present and you have to be self-aware to understand when you're present and when you're not. And once we can kind of wrestle that, um, just live up to the challenge of being your best. Um, That's all we can ever give to any one day, any one circumstances is is that. And I believe that those, you know, if we can do that, um, we can create those habits, those habits ultimately become our character. And, um, and if, that's our, and, and, and when they become our character, that's the way we live our life. Um, and and that, uh, that to me is, uh, is our challenge in life.
1: Live your best. That's been your theme throughout our conversation. Yep. Colonel Greg Gadson. thanks so much for being with us today.
2: You bet, Chris. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for everything that you're doing uh, to sh- the, 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 the share these uh, messages with people and appreciate the opportunity. Yep, absolutely.
1: And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. Be sure to tell your friends and family that we'll be back next Tuesday, same time, same place, with another leader from the world of business, politics, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward.